Father, the scriptures tell us that your faithfulness reaches to the skies. Faithful is he who calls you, and he shall bring it to pass. We're up and down. We're uh, all over the map. Just depends on what's going on that particular day or that hour. But you are steady and you are faithful. We are grateful for your faithfulness through the different seasons of life, through the different chapters of life. Uh, Every guy in this room is either entering into a new chapter, is... uh, perhaps in the middle of one, or one is coming to an end. Uh, The the chapters of life change. They have been written by you before the foundations of the world. We obviously don't know what they are. The only way we can see the chapters is to look back. But you have already penned the chapters that you have designed for each of us And when a transition comes, uh, especially if it's one we didn't see coming, we thought we'd be in a chapter for a number of years, and suddenly through some events that blindsided us or shocked us or stunned us, um, that chapter is hanging by a thread, or that chapter is over. And whenever that happens, we experience anxiety, we experience disappointment, we experience um, confusion at times. But we are so grateful that you are there, and you're steering us, and you're navigating us. And it may be true that there are times when we personally are in the dark about our next step, but you are never in the dark. The psalmist said, you will make known to me the path of life. And there is a path. And you ask us to trust you. As we go through the chapters and we go through the seasons, Proverbs 3 applies to every guy in this room. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. But acknowledge him in all your ways and he shall direct your path. That's a comfort to us, Lord. It truly is. It lets us know we're not alone. The Lord is our shepherd. He's out in front. He's leading. He's directing. We get anxious sometimes because we're waiting to hear from the doctor's office about a test, but we're waiting for another week. And uh, we're wondering what's going to happen in a week. Um, You're already there. And you've got a solution. And you've got an answer for whatever we're facing in a week. Or if it's three months, or if it's a year. Whatever it is, you're already there. You own the past, you own the present, and you own the future. So tonight we trust in you. We ask you to give us wisdom Give us open hearts, teachable hearts, hearts that are quick to respond and hearts that are quick to obey. We're all sinners. We confess our sins to you. Thank you for the blood of Jesus. Thank you for his sacrifice, which made it possible for us to have peace with you, our Father. And thank you that you continue to walk us through each step 
with clarity and with direction. You know the path that we take. We'll trust our futures to you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, tonight we are coming to the end of our study on the Ten Commandments. And I'd like, uh, as we get started tonight, if you'd take your Bibles and turn to Exodus chapter 20. We are going to be covering tonight the Ninth Commandment and the Tenth Commandment. We're going to look at Exodus 20. And what I want to do is just read through these Ten Commandments that we've been studying since September. Um, These commandments are the moral law of God, and they are foundational for all people and all cultures and all societies. And we've said many many times, even for people who don't have a Bible, Romans 2 says God has written these commands on their heart. So, we read in Exodus 20, Then God spoke all these words, saying, and here is sort of the preamble to the Ten Commandments, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. First commandment. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Ah, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all of your work. Go down to verse 12, if you would. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord God gives you. You shall not commit murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. J.I. Packer summarizes the significance of the Ten Commandments in a section in his commentary on the Ten Commandments, which he calls the way of stability. The way of stability. Packer writes this, what is God's ideal? It is a God-fearing community marked by common worship, commandments one, two, and three, an accepted rhythm of work and rest, commandment four, plus an unqualified respect for marriage and the family, commandments five and seven, for property and owner's rights, Commandments 8 and 10. For human life and each man's claim on our protection. Commandment 6. And for truth and honesty in all relationships. Commandment 9. God's concern for communities. This was given to the nation of Israel. A large community. God's concern for communities must not be thought of as second to his concern for individuals. 
the way our own concern so often shapes up. For in him, the two concerns are organically one. That is clear from the way in which the Old Testament repeatedly sums up his promise, which was Israel's hope, in one treasure chest word, shalom. Shalom, translated peace, proves when unpacked to mean not just freedom from war and trouble, sin and irreligion, but also justice, prosperity, good fellowship, health, and all-around communal well-being under God's gracious hand. So God's, catch this, so God's commandments are in truth cement for society. It is clear that where these values are acknowledged, communities, our own for instance in the past, hold together even in this fallen world. But in proportion as these values are negated, society falls apart. So the series we've done, the title I've given to this whole series on the Ten Commandments is Building on Bedrock because the Ten Commandments were given to Moses in stone, rock, bedrock. This has been the basis of Christian civilization, God's moral law. And as Packer put it so well, when they're ad adhered to, basically it's a win-win. And when they are negated, things unravel, as we're seeing in our times. Tonight, I want to give you two commandments and four questions. The two commandments are the ninth and tenth. You shall, uh, Exodus 20, 16, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And then verse 17 is the tenth commandment. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his Lexus or his ox or his donkey. Just thought I'd throw that in for those of you that are a little tired tonight. Just to kind of get your attention. But you understand what's being said here. His ox, his donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. We're going to ask four questions tonight, and I'll go ahead and give you the four questions, and um, you'll know where we're going. So, and these are, I mean, these are simple. Question one, what is bearing false witness? What is it? Number two, what is the effect of lying? What is the effect of lying, which is another aspect of false witness? Question three, what is coveting? Uh, question four, you, you can probably anticipate this, what is the effect of coveting? The, the way I want to do this tonight, because we're, we're, and, and, it's amazing how these commandments, they, they're kind of interwoven. As, as Packer just showed us, uh, they, they, they cover the fabric of our whole lives. Nine and 10 really fit well together. And you see this, one of the ways you see this is with David David, the great king of Israel, who was a man after God's own heart. But David was not only a great man and a great king, but he was a great sinner. Just as we all are great sinners. John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, he was a gifted pastor, a gifted hymn writer, wrote hundreds of hymns. 
his phrase throughout his whole life was, and he had a wretched past. He had been a sailor from a young boy, had become a, a captain of a slave trading ship, had done that for years and years and years and years. He was a hardened reprobate who uh, mocked the gospel and mocked the living God who came to know Christ. And throughout his life, he would say, I am a great sinner, but Jesus is a great savior. That is a great line. It's a great truth. David was um, a great sinner, as we all are. David had um, an episode in his life in 2 Samuel 11. In fact, we're going to turn to 2 Samuel 11. 2 Samuel 1 through 10, David, everything he touches turns to gold. He's, he, he unites the nations. He, 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 uh, he unites the tribes. Uh, every battle he undertakes, God gives favor. He, he's riding a wave of the favor of God. God is blessing him. God's making a way for him. And then you hit 2 Samuel 11. You know this story. It's the story of David and Bathsheba. David's sin with Bathsheba begins with his coveting her. And then he begins to live a lie to cover his sin from Uriah, her husband, and the rest of the nation. So what you've got in this episode in 2 Samuel 11 is you've got the ninth and you got the 10th commandment. Now, let's turn there. You know the story, so I'm not gonna read all of the verses but we'll kind of helicopter it. Second Samuel 11, 1. Then it happened in the spring at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David stayed at Jerusalem. Um, David shouldn't have stayed at Jerusalem. He should have been at war. He should have been leading his men in battle. You can see signs of spiritual fatigue here. You can see signs of um, spiritual lethargy. One of the things that had occurred is that his best friend, Jonathan, at this point, uh, Jonathan had died. Those guys looked out for each other. They loved each other, they cared for each other, they were honest with each other. You know, the scripture says, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. We are not designed to live the Christian life by ourselves. I've said this before, there are two things you can't do by yourself. You can't get married by yourself. I mean, at least not yet. That, that could change any day. You can't get married by yourself, and you can't live the Christian life by yourself. Jesus did not send them out one by one. He sent them out two by two. Uh, David is, uh, he's sort of AWOL, to be honest with you. 
This is, this is unlike David. He was the guy out leading the charge. But for whatever reason, he's getting a little sloppy in his, in his life. And um, he's got time on his hands. I, I heard many, many years ago, a wise preacher say, you have to be very careful of your leisure time. Your leisure time. A lot of us wish that we had more because it takes a lot to provide and to get our responsibilities covered. But leisure time can be dangerous because you drop your guard. That's what happened here with David. Now, when evening came, David arose from his bed and walked around on the roof of the king's house. To this day, if you go to Jerusalem, um, their rooftops are like a basement in, in the Midwest or like a patio in Texas. It's, it's another room. It, uh, it's used because of the weather, because of the climate. And because he's the king and his home is situated on the, the highest vantage point, he can see everywhere in that small little town, and Jerusalem is a small little town, old Jerusalem, he could see what was going on. You know the story. Now when evening came, he rose from his bed. He saw from his roof a woman bathing. She, she probably did not see him, but he could see her. The woman was very beautiful in appearance. David sent and inquired. He sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Uriah was one of his key men, one of his key soldiers. Uh, David sent messengers, took her, and when she came to him, he lay with her. And when she had purified herself from her uncleanness, she returned to her house. The woman conceived, and she sent and told David and said, I am pregnant. Now he's got a problem. Now, he had a problem before this, but now he's really got a problem. But David's sharp. And he gets real creative. So he sends a message to Joab, who's commanding the army, send me Uriah the Hittite. He brings Uriah back, has a conference with him. This is verse 7 and 8. And after they're done in the conference, he says, Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. Uh, spend the evening with your wife. And then he gets a report the next morning. Uriah didn't go into the house. He didn't sleep with his wife. And David asked him why. And he said, well, my men, they're not with their wives. They're in, out there, you know, roughing it. It would not be honorable for me to take advantage if they can't be with their wives for me to be with mine. You know, these guys of integrity can be a real problem. So David, you know, he's, he's, got to, he's got to be pretty quick on his feet here. Well, hey, listen, have dinner with me. Let's have a few drinks. And he gets the guy drunk. Go back to your house. He thought that would do it. It didn't. The guy remained faithful. So now, in verse 14, David's got to write a letter to Joab, and he gives the letter to Uriah to hand, which is Uriah's own death sentence. And basically, he tells him, put him in the fiercest part of the battle so that he'll be killed. And that is exactly what happens. 
then in uh, 26, now when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. When the time of mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife. Then she bore him a son. But the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, David is, he, he's, he's watching his moves. He's doing this very carefully. He's covering his tracks. He's, um, he's the king. He's got a lot of power. He, he can play the chessboard unlike anybody else. He's got all kinds of power. He can make his own rules, and he's doing it. The problem is there's a God who's above him. What is happening here is that this whole thing started when he saw her and coveted. That's when it started. Then... After he beds her, now, you shall not covet is the 10th commandment. You shall not covet your neighbor's house or your neighbor's wife. The ninth commandment is you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And really what happens is after sleeping with her, he begins to live a lie of false witness against not only her husband, but against the entire nation. He's just flat out living a lie by everything he does in order to cover and conceal the truth. The ninth commandment, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, God put in place to protect truth. And David's not living in truth, David's living a lie. So question one, what is bearing false witness? And you know, we've said this before, these commands, they're sort of like uh, an umbrella because they cover a lot of stuff. They cover a lot of ground. That's why we were two and a half months on the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. Because when you talk about adultery, that's a protection of marriage. But especially in our day, as we've gotten further and further away from the word of God, you've got to define marriage. You wouldn't have had to do that 20 years ago or 10 years ago. You've got to define marriage. And then marriage, God says, is between a man and a woman. Now you've got to talk about gender. And so there's a lot to cover in these commandments that come under the umbrella. Kevin DeYoung, in his commentary on the Ten Commandments, quotes the Heidelberg Catechism. The Heidelberg Catechism was put together by a couple of pastors uh, in Germany after the Reformation got going under Martin Luther. They'd been raised in Roman Catholicism. The Bible has been a, had been a closed book, but now Gutenberg, in the providence of God, Luther stands up against the Roman Catholic Church and their doctrine that you're saved by works. He reads the Bible, finds out you're not saved by works, you're saved by grace, Ephesians 2.8, and the whole book of Romans. And he begins to write, and he begins to study, and he is a world-class scholar, the scriptures, and what he is writing uh, is being published and is being spread. Uh, it was a revolution. Back then, Gutenberg's printing press was as much a revolution as the internet was for our day. 
in, way, in ways of dispensing information. And then because he was under attack and he was under threat, Luther's friends kidnapped him. His friends did. Took him to an isolated castle where he translated the Bible into everyday German. Oh, and there was printing presses, so it started, now Bibles are being printed and people are reading the Bible. So it's really quite a time. So in Heidelberg, a couple of pastors got together and they had new believers and they wanted to instruct him in the word of God so they would do a question answer format. If you grew up in Presbyterianism, you're, you're familiar with the Westminster Confession or the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Uh, you ask questions about certain things and then you're given an answer from the scriptures. One of the best catechisms is the Heidelberg. And Kevin DeYoung quotes this here. So what is God after with the ninth commandment? And he quotes the Heidelberg Catechism summary. It means that I never give false testimony against anyone, twist no one's words, not gossip or slander, nor join in condemning anyone rashly or without a hearing. Rather, in court and everywhere else, I should avoid lying and deceit of every kind. These are the very devices the devil uses, and they would call down on me God's intense wrath. I should love the truth, speak it candidly, and openly acknowledge it, and I should do what I can do to guard and advance my neighbor's good name. That's a very good summary of you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Um, the first scholars agree that the, 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 the key idea in this is in a courtroom of giving witness before a judge before the magistrates, whoever is in charge, you shall tell the truth. We put our hands on a Bible and we swear to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth, so help us God. Perjury is a terrible thing. But it's bigger than that. It also means that you would twist no one's words. Uh, it's easy to do that. We do that naturally without even trying. Uh, it can mean, and I'm quoting DeYoung here, it, it can also apply to gossip or slander. Gossip is passing along a report or a rumor that cannot be substantiated. While gossip is passing along what you may not know or passing along what's true but unnecessary, slander goes one step further. It's deliberately passing along what is false. Jesus considered um, slander to be a serious sin. In Matthew 15, verses 19 to 20, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. <clears throat> slander uh, ruins someone's reputation. George Washington along with Lincoln, probably our two most beloved presidents. Not everyone loved George Washington. Back when he was head of the uh, Continental Army and that whole thing at Valley Forge, he, he had his critics, he had his enemies. And one of them was a man named Thomas Conway who was an Irishman who had gone to France. A lot of Irishmen back then uh, were mercenaries and would sign on with different armies and would rise to the ranks. He had been a general with the French army and the French were 
helpers in the American Revolution to the colonies and to Washington. Um, But this guy Conway, he didn't like Washington. He didn't like him at all. In fact, he thought he ought to be head of the American army. And he began to say things. And he began to write things. And he began to attempt, for lack of a better term, to work behind the scenes in Congress to get Washington removed and get him put in place. And it got nasty and it got bad and it got, it, I mean, it got into the, into the slime. Washington pretty much ignored it. But his men were infuriated because they knew his character. They could not believe he was being slandered like that. Back in those days, you could challenge someone to a duel. And one of his generals, a general by the name of John Cadwallader, challenged Thomas Conway to a duel. And he shot Conway on purpose in the mouth. Conway survived, moved back to France, and stayed there. But it was such a wretched and horrific thing how he tried to sully and tarnish the reputation of Washington that it had to be answered. Now, just in case you're wondering, that's not the Christian response to slander. But it was a response. One of the the young says this. Slander also includes assuming the worst possible motives for other people's intentions and refusing to ever give people the benefit of the doubt. One of the foundational points of Western jurisprudence is that you're innocent until proven guilty. It is a biblical idea. Proverbs says that we should hear both sides. Proverbs 18:17 says, the one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. The young summarizes this. He says, in short, we must do whatever we can to protect our neighbor's good name. Proverbs 22.1 says a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches and favor is better than silver or gold. Most of us could recover more quickly if we lost our home, our cars, or our bank accounts than if we lost our good name. If you lose your stuff, people feel sorry for you and rally around you. Let me love you. Let me help you. I can find you a job. But if you lose your good name and reputation, nobody wants to touch you. A good name can take a lifetime to build and a single afternoon to lose. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Um, it, is, it is the antithesis of what Christians are supposed to be. We are supposed to be people of truth. So, let's turn in our Bibles to the Gospel of John. In John 14, 6, you know this statement of Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way 
I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Jesus is truth. He is truth. In John 17, 17, he prays for believers. He says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. If Jesus is God, and he is, and God cannot lie, and he cannot lie, whatever God says is true, his word is true, he is able to give a word that can be trusted. Psalm 119 says, the sum of thy word is truth. You add it all up, it's truth. We are people of the book, and the book is true. In John 8, 31, Jesus said, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Also in John eight forty four, you've got the antithesis of truth. He's talking to the religious leaders, and he says these nice, sweet, and affirming words, you are of your father, the devil. Yeah, isn't it amazing how many people think that you're always supposed to be nice? I mean, generally you're nice, and you get along with everybody, and they have this image that Jesus was always nice. Jesus was not nice here, but he was truthful. He's taking on the religious hypocrites that are leading people to hell. So he's very straight, he's very honest, he's very confrontational because they're accusing him. He says, you are of your father the devil and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whatever he speaks is a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. That is what we used to be. But when Christ came into our lives and regenerated us by the Holy Spirit and we heard the gospel and responded, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creature, old things pass away, all things become new. So now we have a new nature. We still have a remnant of the old nature, but now we're following Christ, the Holy Spirit. And what kind of spirit is he? He's a spirit of holiness and he lives within us. Therefore, we should be people that are learning to tell the truth. That's a process. You don't get it overnight. You don't get in the giant Christian microwave and hit truth for 90 seconds and you'll tell the truth for the rest of your life. It's a process. But you've got to train yourself to be truthful. You've got to train yourself to be a man of your word. <clears throat> Second question would be this. What is the effect of bearing false witness or of lying? So when someone in a courtroom gives false witness, so you got the classic case in the Old Testament where Ahab wants the vineyard that belongs to Naboth, and he said, I'll buy it from you. He said, I can't sell it, and he couldn't under the law. But Ahab wants it, and he's upset that the guy won't sell it to him, and his wife comes in, Jezebel, and she says, what's the matter with you? I want the guy's vineyard, he won't sell it to me. She said, I'll get it for you, and what does she do? She trumps up false charges, hires a couple of guys to lie under oath, and Naboth is killed, and guess who gets the vineyard? Ahab. And then God sends along the prophet, 
and says, oh, by the way, where you killed him, the dogs are going to lick up your blood and they're going to lick up the blood of your wife. Because God takes this stuff seriously. What is the effect of lying, of bearing false witness? Um, under false witness would be exaggerations, would be half-truths. We're all susceptible to this. But what is the effect of false witness when you, when you find out that they didn't tell the truth? What's the effect? Well, the effect is it destroys trust. That's what it does. <clears throat> so Al Mohler in his commentary on uh, the Ten Commandments writes this. Lies subvert a fundamental requirement for civilization, and that is trust. If we do not trust our neighbors to speak the truth, then ultimately no civilization is possible. If we cannot trust the courts to get a true witness and to eliminate a false witness, then the courts become a sham and justice becomes an illusion. If we believe the courts can be manipulated, then there is no foundation to trust for society. False witness against neighbor would threaten Israel's testimony even as it diminished their testimony to the nations. Um, lying, false witness, is a corrosive. It's just like Drano. In, in your home, you, you got, if you got little infants, little, little grandbabies, uh, and they crawl around, you baby-proof cabinets because you don't want those little kids getting into Drano and chugging it because Drano is a corrosive. Uh, it'll do incredible damage to a child. Lying is a corrosive to trust. I remember <clears throat> catching my youngest son, he was about five, in an absolute, flat-out, bold-faced lie. This kid was guilty. And I probably told this story in here, even in recent weeks, probably when we did the, one of the previous commandments. But he was just a little guy, he was real cute, he was very persuasive, and for a minute he had me. But I knew he did it. I mean, there was more circumstantial. I mean, this kid, I had everything but the forensic report. <laughs> I didn't do it, Daddy. I didn't. I promise you, Daddy, I didn't do it. And, you know, it was kind of a... He was afraid he was going to get a spanking. He didn't want a spanking. He's a little guy. I'm kind of looming over him. And I thought, we've got to change the atmosphere. So I got down on my knee and I said, Josh, come here. And he wasn't sure he wanted to come, but he did. And I said, Josh, here's the deal. If you tell me the truth, I won't spank you. But if you lie to me, I'm going to spank you. I said, you did it, didn't you? He said, I did, Dad. I said, he said, how'd you know? I said, well, I used to be five. And I said, I was a great liar when I was five. I was a great liar. He said, you lied? And I said, oh, yeah. He was kind of shocked by that. And I said, yeah. But you see, when I lied, my mommy would, Grammy uh, Bev, she'd wash my mouth out with soap. He said, really? I said, yeah. In fact, let's go in there right now. I didn't say that. Uh, 
because I, you know, we, we, we were working it out. And I said, well, my dad, Papa Jim, he'd spank me. He said, you lied, Dad? I said, yeah. I said, would you like it if I lied to Mommy? He said, you wouldn't lie to Mom, would you? And I said, no. Uh, because, see, Josh, if you lie, you can't have a good marriage. There's no trust. And see, the reason my mom and dad would discipline me for lying is because they knew one day I wouldn't be five, I'd be 40. And one day you're going to be 35, 40, and you're going to be a husband and a father, and you're going to have a child, which is where he is now. And I, as we were talking, I said, you know, Josh, it's always easy to lie. It's very easy to lie. It's hard to tell the truth. Maybe six months later, we're moving a piano or some big guy to rent a U-Haul truck. And it's July, it's hot, there's no air conditioning. I got a friend helping me. We're driving somewhere, storage unit. Josh is sitting in between us. The windows are rolled down. <sighs> really, we're not talking. We're just kind of, you know, trying to cool off. And out of nowhere, Josh says to my friend, Josh said, hey, Bill. And Bill said, yeah, Josh. Josh said, you know, Bill, it's always easy to lie. But it's hard to tell the truth. And Bill said, yeah, that's good, Josh. And then he kind of looked at me and went, where did that come from? There had been no discussion about it for six months. Lying kills trust. Lying kills marriages. Lying kills families. Lying kills nations. Lying kills churches. Lying kills. Let's move to coveting. Question three. So what is coveting? Let's go back to Exodus 20. And this is real practical stuff, and it is in the context of relationships and community and a neighborhood and a city. It's, uh, it's how we get along with one another. Uh, there has to be morality, there has to be rules, there has to be laws, and God has given us his moral law out of his character. So, after reading, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, we go right into, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your, covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Um, this, is, uh, this is an issue of desires. There are good desires, but desires can go bad. Uh, Proverbs says, he who finds a good wife finds a good thing. It's a good thing to get married. It's a good thing to have a good wife. It is not a good thing to see your neighbor's wife and think it would be a good thing for me to have her as my wife. You get that. A lot of people in our culture have absolutely no problem with that. Um, Philip Ryken summarizes this commandment about coveting. 
<clears throat> he says this 10 commandment, this 10th commandment lists several things that we are tempted to covet. However, this list is not meant to be complete because it ends by saying, or anything that is your neighbor's. That closes, that closes any loophole. The items listed are not exhaustive, they are only suggestive. What we are forbidden to covet is anything at all. We may not covet other people's attributes, their age, their looks, their brains, or their talent. We may not covet their situation in life, their marriage, singleness, children. We may not covet spiritual attainments, like a more prominent place of ministry in the church or wider recognition of our spiritual gifts. We are not allowed to covet anything at all. God's law rules out every unlawful desire. And this is a great paragraph from the ESV Study Bible. <clears throat> Speaking of the 10th commandment, you shall not covet. While the previous four commandments focus on actions committed or words spoken, the 10th commandment warns against allowing the heart to covet anything that is your neighbor's. When a person covets, he allows the desire for that which is coveted to govern his relationship with other people. This may become the motivation for murder, stealing, or lying, either to attain the desired thing or to keep it from someone else. Because of the way that coveting values a particular thing over trust and obedience to the Lord as the provider, it also is a breach of the first commandment, which is you shall have no other gods before me. While the Apostle Paul makes clear in the New Testament that coveting is the same thing as idolatry, Ephesians 5.5. 5. Jesus said in Matthew 6, you cannot love God and money. You gotta pick one or the other. In Ecclesiastes, it says, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money. You gotta have money. Joe Lewis said, I don't love money, but it has a way of calming my nerves. <laughs> I love that quote. Now, that's how you wanna do. That's how you wanna live your life. You know, you don't wanna love money, but man, I'll tell you what, it can sure calm the nerves. If you know you can make that rent there in three days. If you can pay the light bill at the end of the week, it has a way of calming the nerves. And the Lord knows we need money. And you see, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. We are stewards. God has given us gifts. God has given us abilities. In the womb, we come out. We are wired certain ways. He, he gives us gifts. He withholds gifts. If you're blessed by God, you're able to work in an area where you are gifted and you are skilled by God from the womb. Guys who are miserable in their work are out of position. That's what that's all about. If you're frustrated with your work, you probably weren't intended for that kind of work. But if you're working in an area of a God-given strength, man, you can't believe how fast the day goes by because you love what you do. That's a blessing of God. And we work in order to get income, in order to provide for our families and to pay our bills and to be responsible. We are stewards and we will give an account. 
That's why um, John Wesley, I quoted him a couple weeks ago, said, earn as much as you can, give as much as you can, save as much as you can. We're stewards, we're gonna give an account and we'll give an explanation to the Lord for how we handle the resources that he has given to us. Um, coveting is wanting something that doesn't belong to you. This is an issue of the heart. The heart. The heart is the central issue. Proverbs 4.23 says, guard your heart for from it flows the wellsprings of life. Um, the heart would be your, <clears throat> your mind in the Old Testament concept. It's your mind, it's your will, it's your emotions. It's, it's who you are. Um, it includes the mind. Turn over with me, if you would, to James chapter 1. Because James gives us an insight into what happens. How did, how did someone like David lose his mind that night on the rooftop? Are, you've had the experience of seeing a guy who has influenced you through his ministry. Maybe he's been faithful for years. You've appreciated his uh, love for the word and... Uh, He's, um, he's helped you grow in your faith. And then you hear this tragic news that the guy has tanked. Walked away from his wife, walked away from his kids, gotten involved with some 19-year-old chick. Or you hear that um, he's been dismissed from his church because of financial impropriety that's been going on for years and years and years, and you're shocked because you've actually heard him preach against that. What, what happens? How does this stuff, how does this occur? So in James chapter one, verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil and he himself does not tempt anyone. Watch this, but each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Lust is not just physical, not just sexual. There can be a lust for power. There can be a lust for the limelight. There can be a lust to be uh, known and recognized and appreciated. There can be a lust for control. There can be, I mean, you can lust after, you, you can la lust after anything. It's anything that's in your life that you put before God. Anything. So let, let, this is gonna tell us what happens in our hearts and in our minds. Each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. Now watch this. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Turn over to Joshua chapter 7. So you remember Joshua fit the battle of Jericho. And as they're going into the promised land after 40 years of waiting... 
They're going to take these different cities that are owned by the ites. You know, all the, you know, Perizzites, Amorites, Canaanites, all the different ites. And if you go to Joshua 7, now you remember the battle of Jericho and seven days and all of that. Okay. Sometimes God would allow them after they took a city to take the spoils. But God specifically said for Jericho, you're not to take any spoils, nothing. You don't walk away with any money or clothing or jewels or anything. So they take Jericho, then you get into seven and they're gonna go battle these guys at Ai, which they weren't that big, they weren't that intimidating. They could take them without thinking twice and they get their tails kicked by the guys at Ai and they actually lose some men. And Joshua's shocked because God said, you won't be defeated in battle. What's happened? There's sin in the camp. And this is where they discover that a guy named Achan had violated the ban on taking anything from Jericho. And so through a process that they went through outlined in Joshua 7, they go to Achan, they talk with him, Joshua 7 verse 20. So Achan answered Joshua and said, truly I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel, and this is what I did. Think about this in regard to what we just read in James. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful mantle, a cloak, a coat, maybe a real nice soft leather coat some guy did in Montana with a sheepskin collar. I mean, a really nice coat. I, I saw the beautiful mantle from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold, 50 shekels in weight. Then I, watch this, coveted them and took them and behold, they are concealed in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath it. See, this is the insanity that comes in disobeying God. So you take the mantle, you take the Montana leather sheepskin coat, you take the gold, you take the silver, you take the Rolex watch, you take the... Now, can he walk around at night at dinner time saying hi to everybody? Wearing his stuff? No, where is it? It's in the dirt. It's buried in the dirt because he can't even use it. This is where we get deceived by sin and we get deceived by Satan. He's a liar. How in the world could David have been conned to think he could sleep with that woman and not be found out as king of Israel? And we're still being lied to. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Oh, yeah? Well, you can be sure your sin will find you out. See, this comes down to the heart. Guard your heart. Look out for your heart. I, I, I have seen a lot better men than me go down. Guys, guys who have impacted me, guys that ministered to me, guys that were mentors to me, I've seen them throw away 
their ministries and their lives and their families. And, and, it's, it's, it, and I'm thinking of one guy, and it happened when I was 20 years old. And it was 50 years ago. And it still shocks me. I still shake my head. How could he have been that stupid? But we're lied to and we believe the lies. Uh, we think it's the place of happiness and it's not the place of happiness. So guard your heart. How do I guard my heart? I think uh, you guard your heart. The verse in Proverbs is escaping me, but he who walks with wise men will be wise. David was not walking with any wise men here. Um, Jonathan was dead. You know, I got a sneaking suspicion that if Jonathan had been around and David was up on that rooftop in his jacuzzi smoking a cigar and all his, you know, all his guys are out on the battlefield eating you know, rations. You know what I think would have happened if Jonathan was alive? I think Jonathan would have walked up those stairs to that rooftop. He would have kicked that door open and said, hey, get your butt out of that hot tub and get your gear and get out there. And Dave would say, hey, you can't talk to me like that. I'm the king. Don't give me that king junk. I should have been king. You're just nothing but a little sheep herder. Get your stuff and get out there. And David would have done it because he knew the guy loved him. We all need somebody in our lives who love us enough to tell us the truth. See, when you know somebody, we've all got our critics. Everybody's got critics. But when I hear something that I don't want to hear from someone who loves me and has a track record with me and who would die for me, I better listen up. God uses people who love me and who walk with him to talk to me. And when I hear two or three things out of the mouths of two or three people that I respect their walk, I better listen up. Um, I guard my heart by being in the scriptures. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching. Watch this, reproof. Reproof. You ever been reproved? My dad used to reprove me when I disobeyed. He'd say, Steve. <laughs> I remember as a little kid in church, sometimes I like to sit on the front row. And uh, I met a lady years ago, probably 15 years ago. I was preaching somewhere on the West Coast. This lady came up to me after service. She said, is your dad Jim Farrar? And I said, yes. She said, did you grow up in Bakersfield? I said, yes. She said, I went to the same church that you, your family did. And I remember the Sunday, you used to sit on the front row, didn't you? And I said, yes. <laughs> she said, I remember the Sunday when you took out your yo-yo in the middle of the service and you started doing this. And I remember your dad, who was two rows behind you, reaching over and picking you up and bringing you back over and sitting you down. 
She said, do you remember that? I said, no, ma'am, it's been obliterated from my memory. I, I, I have no memory of that whatsoever, but I believed her. That's called a reproof. See, God reproves us because he loves us. He's a good father. All scriptures, all scriptures inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof. No, no, not that. No. Correction, not that. This. Teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness. That's what a father does with a son. That the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. It's a process. God's training us. He's teaching us. I'm going to come back to something in a minute, but let's, let's go to the fourth question. What is the effect of coveting? What is the effect of coveting? And again, I'm going to quote from Packer here, because he says it so well. He says this, coveting is a root of all social evil. Desires that burst the bounds beget actions to match. Desires that burst the bounds. David took Bathsheba, thus by theft, breaking the eighth commandment, and got her pregnant, thus breaking the seventh commandment. And then to avoid scandal, arranged for her husband Uriah to be killed, thus breaking the sixth commandment, and it all began with David coveting his neighbor's wife in breach of the tenth commandment. You see, it begins with the heart. It really does begin with the heart. Other than Adam and Eve in the garden, when they listened to the tempter, the account in 2 Samuel 11 is probably the greatest moral shipwreck in history in terms of its infamy. Everybody knows that story. Hollywood made a movie about it. David and Bathsheba. A case could be made. It's the most well-known moral shipwreck in history other than Adam and Eve. The greatest moral shipwreck. So what would be the greatest shipwreck in history? Well, probably the Titanic. Allow me to quote from something I wrote a while back. The plight of the Titanic may be the most famous shipwreck in all of history. The sin of David with Bathsheba may be the most famous moral shipwreck in all of history. And you know the story of the Titanic. The Titanic was the greatest ship ever built. It launched on April 10th, 1912. It was known as the ship that God couldn't sink. It was impregnable. They were so confident that there were only 20 lifeboats for 2,200 passengers. We all know about the tragedy of the Titanic hitting the iceberg. But the fact of the matter is, 
and this really is fascinating from history, the Titanic shipwrecked before it ever hit the iceberg. You say, how can that be? Well, the reason we know that to be true is that at least six times before hitting the iceberg over the previous two days, the Titanic had received six radio messages that icebergs were dead ahead. And every one of the messages was somehow ignored. How did David go down with Bathsheba? How does anybody go down? Does God just let that happen? No. Uh, he reproves us. Before David ever shipwrecked with Bathsheba, he kept getting uh, warning messages from the Lord. In, in Deuteronomy 17, 17, God said certain things about the king of Israel. One of the things it said is that the king of Israel should only have one wife. Now all the other kings and all the other nations had multiple wives. But the king of Israel was only to have one, life, one wife. And there were other stipulations. By the way, the king of Israel, when he took the throne, was to write a copy of the Old Testament scriptures by hand for himself. And he was read, to read it all the days of his life. David knew Deuteronomy 17, 17. Before David ever sinned with Bathsheba, he'd been sent a number of warning messages. When David married Bathsheba, he had at least six wives and perhaps eight. And every time he married, again, I am telling you the Spirit of God convicted him about his sin. But he just kept charging ahead. He just kept charging ahead. And this is what the Spirit of God does to us. How does he reprove us? Sometimes we get something in our mind. I want to do this. I covet this. Or I have this plan. Or I'm going to do this. Or I'm going to do this. The mind of man plans his way. But the Lord directs his steps. God will intervene with you. That's Proverbs 16. And later in Proverbs 16, it says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is destruction. So the Lord, if we're on a wrong path, he will reprove us. The Spirit of God will convict us. But see, the question is, will I listen or will I not listen? And if you don't listen and you keep charging ahead, he's going to convict you. He's going to reprove you. He's going to try and get your attention. And this is what happened with David. But David would not listen. This is why David shipwrecked before he ever hit the sheets with Bathsheba. The thing that scares me <clears throat> is me. Because I am a great sinner. I see men I've admired and respected and have appreciated their work and they've influenced me and I've seen them go down and ruin their lives. I, I'm telling you, I got the same potential and so do you. So dear God in heaven, help me to guard my heart. Paul said, we are not unaware of Satan's devices, of his ambushes, of his traps, of his setups. Joe Aldrich said one time, Satan will wait 40 years to set an ambush. 
That frightens me, and I frighten myself, because I know my own propensities, and I know my own heart and my own sin nature. So you got to stay close with people who love the Lord, and you got to stay teachable, and you got to stay in the Word, and then you got to do what He tells you to do. Now, there's not a guy in here that's done that perfectly, which is why God sent His Son Jesus to be our Savior. There's David hid this and lived the lie for over a year. He had it all covered up, and then in 2 Samuel 12, the prophet Nathan shows up and tells him this story about this rich man that had all these sheep. And there was this one poor little man who had one little lamb, and this rich man who had all these sheep stole that one man's little lamb. And David heard about it, was incensed, and came out of his chair. And I mean, he was just angry. And Nathan looked at him and said, you're the man. You're the man. In two Psalms, Psalm 32 and Psalm 51, we have David's repentance. Repentance, Thomas Watson said, is the vomiting of the soul. It's the dry heaves of the soul. You hate your sin. It's not a... It's not, I'm sorry, because I got caught. It is a, a loathing of your sin and what you've done. Uh, you have a broken spirit. You have a contrite spirit. And when God sees that, he doesn't turn us away. David was forgiven by Christ. In fact, Nathan said, your sins are forgiven. But you are going to deal with some consequences in your own home. And God gave him the grace to bear with those consequences. But it was a discipline from the Lord. God's a good father. He's given us, every guy in this room, he's given you a sphere of responsibility. He's given you a family, people to lead, to love, to care for. And we're to love them as Christ loved this church. It starts with our wives, then our kids, grandkids, etc. But guys, you can count on this. The enemy is going to do everything he can do to deceive you and trap you and con you to get away from these Ten Commandments. But you see, they're the cement of life. They hold families together. They hold countries together. And yeah, we're sinners, but Jesus is a great Savior. David was forgiven, and David was used, and he learned lessons the hard way. I saw a young man recently, I hadn't seen him in 20 years, and I remembered, I remember when I met him, I just met him once, and he reminded me of where we met, and I remember the conversation because he grew up in a Christian home, had rebelled, had made some incredibly dumb decisions, had ruined, virtually ruined his life at the time and the lives of others. Come back to the Lord. And when I met him, he alluded to me what had happened and asked me if I was familiar with his story. And I said, I am. And he said, yeah. 
And he, you could tell he was repentant and broken. And he said to me 20 years ago, he said, I, I guess I just had to learn the hard way. And I said, well, I'm going to tell you something. I've yet to meet anyone who's learned the easy way. Because we're all sinners. But Jesus is a great Savior. Let's pray. So, Father, thank you for your truth. Thank you for your word. Thank you for grace and mercy. We can't live up to this law. You took it upon you, our sin and our shortcomings. And you took the wrath for us. And now you've empowered us with your spirit so that we can learn to keep the law, which pleases you. May your favor be upon every man in this room. Keep our eyes peeled to Satan's devices. Protect us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.